Titus chapter 3. Our focus will be on verses 10 and 11 this morning of Titus chapter 3. Anyone here been to Paris? Ah, three of you. <laughs> Très bon. Great. Oh, a few more. Okay, great. This side's a little slower <laughs> this morning. Uh, Paris is a great city, so I'm told I've never been there myself. If I ever went, uh, one of the things that would be on my list of things to see, and there would be many, would be the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Notre Dame. In Indiana, we say Notre Dame. (coughs) (laughs) That magnificent cathedral serves as a monument to the craftsmanship and beauty inspired by Western civilization, and more particularly, Christianity. Construction on the cathedral began in 1163, And it took 183 years to complete. Brent, you did much better on this building (laughs) than that. 183 years to complete it. On April the 15th, 2019, as you probably were aware, unless you're living in a hole somewhere, a fire broke out in the roof space of the cathedral. And within about 12 hours, the great spire of Notre Dame collapsed. And the roof came down, and all that was left inside was pretty much destroyed. What took 183 years to build was destroyed in less than 24 hours. It takes hard work and great skill to build something great. It takes little effort and no skill to destroy. It can take a long time to build something beautiful. It can take very little time to destroy it. So it is with church unity. Unity in the church is hard won. But it can be very easily and very quickly lost and forfeited. Our relational unity as a church, as a church body, as a church family, is vital to our witness and to the credibility of the gospel message. This is why Jesus prayed for our unity. In John 17, and Jesus' high priestly prayer, praying on our behalf, prayed this, I in them, Father, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Unity, church unity, body unity, reflects not only the unity between the Father and Son of the Trinity, but also is a witness before a watching world. And this is why Paul urged the saints to work hard at preserving unity within the church. He wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, 3, he said, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be diligent. Work hard at it. Seek it out. Do your best 
to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do your best to preserve that outward expression of unity that is the inward reality that unites us all together. We are united in one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who takes up residence in each one of us, uniting us together in Him through Jesus Christ. We're to be diligent to preserve that unity. Here in the book of Titus, as Paul writes to Titus on the Isle of Crete, he calls Titus, this young pastor, to set things straight in all the churches around Crete. Now, setting things straight would no doubt result in opposition. Those who are in positions of leadership currently in various churches around Crete would resist Titus's efforts to bring reform and restore order and sound doctrine to the churches. There would be pushback, to be sure, that Titus would experience. How should Titus handle this opposition from those who were causing divisions and factions within the churches? In our text this morning, Paul gives Titus a roadmap for dealing with divisive people, for dealing with factious people within the church family. So I want to read here from Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Titus 3, verses 8 through 11. We're going to focus our attention this morning on verses 10 and 11, but I want to go back just a little bit to set some of the context again for you. Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Let me read it for us. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the church of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we belong to the universal church, that unseen presence of Christ's people, unseen in that we aren't all gathered together in the same place ever, consisting of all believers everywhere. But we thank you that you give local expression, visible expression to that universal church in the local church. And that as much as you died for the birth of the universal church, you died for the birth and life and health of the local church. Lord, we thank you for this local church. We thank you, Lord, for the work of the gospel that goes on here. We thank you, Lord, for the unity that is present here. And yet we are mindful of how fragile unity is and can be. Lord, we need your help to know how best to protect your church from factions and divisions that sully the reputation of the gospel in the community, that divide brothers and sisters in Christ when they ought to be united together. So teach us, Lord, how to preserve and protect unity in the local church 
from your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Divisive people can be difficult to deal with. They typically have very strong personalities. They typically are very vocal in their opinions. And they are always completely convinced that they are in the right. And that their every action is completely justified. Divisive people can be difficult to deal with. So how should a church and its leaders deal with divisive, factious people? Paul shares in this passage this morning two important elements for protecting the church from factious people. Two important elements for protecting the church from factious people. The first instruction that Paul gives for dealing with factious people, he he lays out for them the process of protecting the church from factious people. So first he's going to lay out the process. And then we're going to see the purpose. The process, first of all. Paul commands Titus to reject factious people after first and second warning. Right there in verse 10. Paul has asked Titus to do a difficult job. In Paul's place, acting under Paul's apostolic authority, Titus was to set in order what remains in the various churches around Crete. And there were many problems. There were many things that remained out of order in the churches around Crete. Many of these problems stemmed from the fact that Cretan culture was notoriously depraved and that larger cultural depravity had certain holdovers into the church. It crept into the church in certain ways, in ways that weren't always readily apparent even to the Christians in the churches. Cretans were known for their deceit. They were known for their gluttony. They were known for following their worst animalistic inclinations. Even one of their own poets infinitely infamously confessed that the Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. In addition to this general condition of Cretan culture that was having a corrosive effect on some of the churches, the church of Crete, was also struggling with threats from within. Not only threats from without, but threats from within. False teachers had crept into the churches, into the pulpits, and they'd gained positions of influence and authority. And they were leading people astray. Titus was to go in and seek to correct these false teachers. And if possible, bring them back to the truth. Look back with me, Titus chapter 1, verse 10. Titus chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, Judaizers, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Titus is to go in and try to correct these folks, silence them at the very least, so that their 
false teachings and divisive ways do not spread. Look at verses 13 and 14. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Reprove them severely so they may be sound in the faith. Correct them if possible. Show them the right path. And help them get back on it if at all possible. Now this would be no easy task. Purging a church of false teachers and factious people never is. False teachers and factious people who have a position of power and influence will not be inclined to just step down, to step aside and let someone else lead. Titus is likely to meet with great resistance along the way. So what is Titus to do in such cases where his attempts to restore order and sound doctrine and church unity are met with opposition? Paul does not leave Titus empty-handed or defenseless in this task. Paul shares with Titus how to handle these difficult situations, and he does so by sharing with him a three-step process for dealing with factious people. So this first point has three sub-points, this three-step process. Now, before we get into the three-step process for dealing with factious people within the church, I want us to first see how we are to deal more generally with sin in the church, and specifically with persistent, unrepentant sin within the church. Jesus the Lord and head of the church, left us with clear instructions for how we as a church are to deal with persistent, unrepentant sin inside the body. I want you to turn in your Bibles along with me to Matthew chapter 18. This is a bit of an excursus here. To understand what's going on in Titus chapter 3, I think we need to understand what's happening in Matthew chapter 18. So turn there with me if you would. Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, Jesus shares the process for dealing with sin, persistent, unrepentant sin in the body of Christ, in the local church. Matthew 18, 15. Jesus says, If your brother sins, go... And show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Here, Jesus gives us a four-step process for addressing persistent, unrepentant sin in the church. Notice I said persistent, unrepentant sin in the church. 
The reality is every Christian is a sinner. Any sinless Christians here? Please don't raise your hand. (laughs) Even after we come to know Jesus Christ and we're forgiven of all of our sins, we still struggle with sin. We still commit sin. Amen? Is that your experience? That's a reality. Every Christian is a sinner. Every Christian sins every day. Your pastor sins every day. My thoughts, my words, and my deeds fall short of God's perfect and holy will each and every day in multiple ways, in ways I'm not even always aware of. Every Christian still commits sin. The issue that is of concern here in Matthew 18 is not sin in the life of a believer, for that is a given. The issue is unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin. Christians are to live lives of constant repentance. We sin as Christians. We're convicted of our sin. We confess and repent of our sin and we're restored to the joy of our salvation because of God's promise in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But sometimes Christians don't repent of their sins even when they become aware of them even when those sins are pointed out to them. So what are Christians to do? What should be done? What is the church to do? Jesus shares a four-step process that we as members of Christ's church should follow in the case of persistent, unrepentant sin in the life of a brother or sister. Jesus says, first of all, go privately to your brother and lovingly confront them about their sin. Notice this confrontation is to be in private, as verse 15 makes clear. No one else needs to know about it. You don't need to share it with the prayer chain. You don't need to share it with your small group. This is just between you and your brother or sister in Christ, who seems to be in a condition of persistent, unrepentant sin. It's private. This keeps the circle small as possible. If he or she listens, Jesus says, you've won your brother. Hallelujah. Maybe they didn't realize they were sinning. Maybe this was some, a blind spot for them. And you've pointed it out and they've seen it and they've been convicted by it and they confess it and they turn from their sin and it's over. Restoration. In full. The goal of this four-step process is always restoration. It's never punitive as a goal. The goal is restoration of the believer to fellowship. That's what Jesus repeats again and again and again. You've won your brother. You've won your brother. You've won your brother. If you win your brother... The process ends right there. And fellowship resumes. But if he or she doesn't listen, you proceed to step two. Going again to your brother or sister, this time 
taking one or two other Christians with you as witnesses and confronting them a second time. Here, the circle that was initially private is widened just a little bit. Involving others in the process. These others serve as witnesses. Jesus cites the passage from Deuteronomy and the importance of establishing facts and the necessary step of having one or two witnesses to the accusation. Witnesses serve both to witness not only the accusation, but also the response of the accused. The witnesses help to weigh the legitimacy or the credibility of the accusation, and they also witness the response of the sinning brother to the confrontation. They may or may not themselves have witnessed the sin, but they are serving as witnesses to the process. And they now, as either two or three individuals, call the sinning brother or sister to repentance. Jesus says, if he or she listens, then you have won your brother or your sister. Hallelujah. Full restoration. That's the goal of this process. Process. Restoration of relationship and fellowship. The goal is always restoration. If he or she doesn't listen, then you proceed to step three. Jesus says step three is tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. Share the basics of the situation with the gathered body of believers. Now that circle, having been widened a little bit, is widened to the full. The whole church is brought into the process of restoration. Not for public shaming, but so that the prayers and love and concern and pursuit and calls to repentance of the whole church can be deployed and brought to bear for the sake of the restoration of the sinning brother or sister. If he or she listens, Jesus says, you won your brother. Full restoration, full fellowship. But if he or she doesn't listen, proceed to step four. Step four, Jesus says, is put them out of the church. Put them out of the church. Jesus says, treat them as a Gentile or tax collector. Which is essentially saying, treat them as an unbeliever. Treat them as an outsider. To no longer consider them as a Christian, but as an unbeliever. They are lost in their sins, and unless they repent, they are headed for hell. How can the church be so sure about this? Well, this individual who's persisting in their unrepentant sin has failed to listen to a loving individual brother or sister who's confronted them privately and pled with them to to abandon their sin and return to Christ. They failed to listen again when one or two witnesses was brought along 
And they were lovingly called to repentance again. They've even failed to listen to the whole church who has called them to repentance and restoration. And they've persisted in their sin, persisted in their refusal to per- repent. And there's only one thing left to do. Remove them from the church. Treat them as an unbeliever, for they are truly acting like an unbeliever. Disregarding the pleas and concerns and the prayers of not just a few witnesses, but the whole church. Jesus says the disciplinary actions of the church rightly carried out are decisive and determinative. That's what verse 18 is saying. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Serious business. So that's the normal process for dealing with sin in the church. Dealing with unrepentant sin in the church. Now back to Titus chapter 3, if you will, please. Here we have a slightly different process for dealing with a specific kind of unrepentant sin inside the church. The sin of divisiveness. The sin of factiousness. The sin of dividing brother and sister from one another and creating a party spirit. As I've indicated, the process here in Titus is a three-step process rather than a four-step process. Now, why would that be? Well, I think it's in part because of the nature of divisiveness and the nature of factious people. The length of the process is therefore slightly shortened, slightly truncated, so that those involved in the process are also more limited. It makes sense. The last thing you want to do with a divisive person, with a factious person, is to send a bunch of people in the church their way. Because what are they going to do? Try to divide you from the rest of the body. Try to tell you that the leaders don't know what they're talking about. Try to tell you that the elders are off track. It's like sending a lamb to the wolves. You don't want to do that. Shepherds shouldn't do that. So there's a different process involving different people. You certainly don't want to give a factious person a platform for sowing more and more division. So this process of restoration, and again, the goal is restoration. This process looks a little different for the sin of factiousness. So step one in this three-step process for dealing with factious people. Step one, warn them a first time. Warn them a first time. Those who are teaching falsehoods, who are abusing their positions of influence and authority, who are dividing the body of Christ into factions, should first of all be warned. The word warning here is the Greek word nuthesia. Nuthetic counseling comes from this word, or biblical counseling is inspired by this word. The word means to warn, to instruct, to admonish. 
This warning or admonishment is offered for the person's growth and progress as a Christian. The hope here by the person doing the warning is that the warning will be heeded, that the warning will be listened to, and the person will turn away from their false teaching, from their false beliefs, from their wrong behavior, and from their divisive ways. This act of warning with the hope of repentance and heart change is similar to what Paul told Timothy to do with similarly divisive people operating within the church there at Ephesus. In 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, Paul writes this to Timothy around the same time. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. In other words, the Lord's elder, the Lord's shepherd, the Lord's pastor must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps... God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. The goal is restorative. The goal is to reach these people and warn them of the path they're on and urge them to turn from it. This warning or admonition to the factious person is not to be punitive in nature, It's not to seek their harm, but their good. Notice that Titus is the one who is to do the warning. That's what Paul says as he writes to Titus. He says, you, Titus, reject a factious man. In other words, it's someone in church leadership. It's someone with spiritual authority. It's someone who meets the spiritual qualifications to lead Christ's church, who's to do the warning. Someone who's well-equipped and qualified and mature to deal with a factious person. Look back with me at Titus chapter 1 and verse 9 where Paul lists some of the qualifications for those who would serve as elders or pastors, as overseers. And it's very similar to what we just read in 2 Timothy. Titus 1, 9. There to be those who hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that they will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Verse 10. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced. So unlike Matthew 18, where any Christian may be involved in this process of restorative discipline, here it is the church leader's responsibility. The church leaders are called on to confront the factious person. So the factious person is first warned. They are warned. If the factious person heeds this warning and turns from their factious ways, presumably the discipline process would end here and the person would be restored to full fellowship. That's the goal. Now that doesn't mean that this formerly factious person might immediately be given a position of leadership or teaching or authority within the church. They may be given that in time, But wisdom would dictate that some time is probably needed to show the fruits of their repentance. 
the genuineness of their repentance and to regain the trust of the leadership that's been broken and the trust of the congregation. But what if they don't heed the first warning? That leads us to step two of this three-step process for dealing with factious people. Step two, warn them a second time. I'm going to count to two. Warn them a second time. I'm amazed at how gracious this is. This is God's word. Jesus is Lord and head of the church. He's left us with instructions for how the church is to be managed, including for difficult situations like this. And here you've got a factious person teaching who knows what, saying who knows what terrible things about the leadership. You go to them, you warn them a first time, they don't listen, and they're caught red-handed doing it again. What are you supposed to do? You warn them a second time. How gracious is our God? How patient and merciful and long-suffering is He? Even with factious people. How patient was the Lord Jesus with Judas? Who was betraying Him on that very night? And yet what did Jesus do? He washed His feet. He served Him. He took upon Himself the apron of a slave. And knelt down and washed Judas' feet. And shared a bowl with him. A bowl of food. A common cup. Knowing what, G- what Judas was up to. How gracious is our God. Aren't you grateful that he's gracious? Because he's gracious, he's gracious to you and I as well. He's gracious to our rebellion. He's gracious with our acts of sedition. A person has been warned. They do it again. They're to be warned a second time. They're warned and admonished by the leadership to turn from their sin and stop their divisive ways a second time. The Lord is far more gracious than I am naturally. We can all be grateful for that. Warn them a second time. What? I already warned them once. They know what's right and wrong. They've disregarded what has been said to them by the leadership of the church. Now I'm supposed to just warn them a second time? Now you better stop. You better knock that off. You better cut that out. Again, yes, the Lord says, warn them a second time. The divisive person who persists in sowing discord after a first warning is to be warned a second time. They are urged a second time to stop and to repent and be restored. And that brings us to step three for dealing with factious people. And that is the final step. Reject the factious person. If they've been warned twice already, 
and they still persist in their divisiveness and they refuse to repent or they fail to show the fruits of true repentance, then they are to be rejected. Rejected. The word reject means to have nothing to do with. To go around them. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 describes this. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. These things apply to anyone who's come to the end of the discipline process, whether it was a four-step process for general sins, persistent unrepentant sin, or whether it's this specialized process for dealing with factiousness and divisiveness. Either way, the end result is the same. They are put out. They are rejected. We are to keep away from every person who leads an unruly life not according to the tradition which has been received from the apostles. Romans 16, 17 says this, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. Keep your eye on them. Dissensions and hindrances that are contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Reject them. Turn away from them. Keep away from them. 2 Thessalonians 3.14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him. Do not associate with him so that he'll be put to shame. 1 Corinthians 5.11, church at Corinth was dealing with persistent unrepentant sin within the body. Paul says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. Not a true brother in the Lord, but a so-called brother. Someone who was thought to be a brother, but by their actions is proving that they weren't truly a brother in Christ. I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Don't share a meal. Don't share casual fellowship with them. Avoid them. Mark and avoid All fellowship has been broken. No meetings for casual purposes. No meals together anymore. The only time a meeting would be agreed to would be for the express purpose of calling that purpose person to repentance again. Again, this rejection verse 10, is the equivalent to step 4 in the Matthew 18 passage. To consider them as a Gentile and a tax collector, as an unbeliever, to remove them from membership, to remove them from the fellowship, to exclude them from the Lord's table, and exclude them from the loving fellowship of the church family. So it's a three-step process when dealing with a factious person. You warn them once, you warn them a second time, and then you have nothing to do with them. Remove them from the church. It no doubt would be a painful process. 
the factious person will object. You think? They will say they are being treated unfairly. They will accuse the leadership of all kinds of things. They will seek open ears that are willing to listen to their rants. They will seek to further divide the body throughout the process. That's what factious people do. And yet, despite the painful process, it must be done. Like removing gangrene from an otherwise healthy body, it's painful, but it must be done, or the disease will spread and eventually ruin the body. That's the process for dealing with a factious person. Secondly, this morning we'll see the purpose. The purpose for protecting the church from factious people. You see the purpose of this three-step process in verse 11? Knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Titus and the leaders of the churches are to do this, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning and is self-condemned. The reason and purpose for dealing so quickly and decisively with a factious person is because they can be so destructive to the unity of the church. The leaders are to act decisively and rapidly in the face of such a threat to the body. And the leaders do so knowing, knowingly, literally, because you know. Because you know this to be true about a factious person, warn them once, warn them twice, and then reject them. Have nothing to do with them. Put them out. And what is it that the leaders know about a factious person? Three things. First of all, leaders understand that a factious person is perverted. Literally, it means warped. They are warped. If you're doing a construction project, you're going to build a shed in your backyard, you're going to go to the hardware store, you're going to look for straight pieces of lumber, aren't you? You don't want some piece of wood that's going every which way. You want to build with straight lumber. These people are warped. They're not right. Something's off. Something's wrong. And they've proved that by their refusal to heed the warnings and their persistence in seeking to divide the body. They're warped. Knowing that they're warped, you've got to follow the process and see it through. Either to restoration or rejection. To be warped refers to someone who has turned aside morally. They've gone off the right path and onto the wrong path in their thinking and in their actions. Interesting, the verb is in the middle voice. They have warped themselves. The further they've gotten in, the more it has warped them and shaped them in odd ways which are harmful to the church 
Their refusal to listen to the repeated warnings and admonitions of their spiritual leaders demonstrates that the issue is one of the heart and not the mind. Their heart is warped. Spiritually warped. The second thing that leaders know about factious people is that they are sinning. The verb is in the present tense, which means that the factious person keeps on sinning, and that's the point. They won't heed the warnings. They won't stop. They just keep on going. They keep on sinning despite repeated warnings. And this pattern of persistent sin is a result of their warped mind and heart. Because they're warped, they keep on sinning. This persistent sin that they keep on doing includes self-deception. They think they're right. They think they're justified. They think they're on the right path and they want you to join them. They're self-deceived. Their sin includes error, selfishness, pride, leading others astray, disrupting and dividing households and believers from each other, rejecting spiritual authority. And they keep on sinning. The leaders know this, and that's why they've got to act. The third thing that leaders know about a factious person and that serves as a purpose for protecting the church from them is that factious people are self-condemned. They will blame everyone else. They'll say the leadership is unbiblical. The people are unloving. You're all hypocrites. But the reality is the situation is entirely one of their own making. Because of their own stubborn refusal to listen to their leaders and heed the repeated warnings to repent of their divisive ways. Their stubborn refusal to listen to two warnings is tantamount to an admission of their own guilt. The shepherds who have been given care over my eternal soul, I am stopping my ears to their warnings. I am disregarding their instruction. Therefore, I am proving that I am a factious person, persisting in my sin. I won't be admonished by others. I won't listen to my leaders. I won't stop sinning. That is the effect of their persistent divisiveness. They prove themselves to be guilty and thereby an unbeliever. Look at Titus 1, 15 and 16. Again, flip the page. Paul is writing here about some of these false teachers. He says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. The factious person is going to say, I have the closest walk with Jesus of anybody. But by their deeds they deny Him. They won't listen. They won't submit to those who are entrusted with their care. And they are self-condemned. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deeds. 
their deeds, their attitudes, their responses, rise up and take the witness stand against them. And the verdict is guilty. Beloved, the church is precious to Jesus Christ. He bought the church with his own blood. He died to unite us together in him so that nothing would separate us from him or from one another. Therefore, church unity is precious to him as well. That is why the unity of the church must be protected. May the Lord help us all to avoid any actions on our own part or attitudes that might be divisive or factions, factious. And may God give our leaders, our elders, courage to protect the church against those who would seek to divide it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you died and rose again for the unity of the church, the unity of the body, the unity of believers. Not just a spiritual, invisible union that is ours through the bond of the Spirit who indwells us, but a practical, visible unity that is manifest when believers gather together and enjoy fellowship with one another. It is precious in your sight. It itself is an act of worship and an evidence of the power to change lives. Unity is precious, and yet it is so fragile. What takes great time and skill to build among a church body can be undone with a word, in a moment. A careless word, a divisive spirit. Lord Jesus, protect us from such things. Protect our own hearts. We're prone, all of us, to have a party spirit. To say, I'm of this, or I'm of that, or I'm of this person, or that creed. And to look down on others who are not or who are slightly different than us. Lord, help us to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. To work hard at it. And give us, Lord, as leaders, discernment and courage in the face of divisive threats to act decisively and rapidly to eliminate that threat. Lord, we ask this for the glory of your church and the good of your people and ultimately the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.